See, this is the real secret of life. To be completely engaged with what you're doing in the here and now. And instead of calling it work, realize that this is play. Welcome to the Restore to Explore podcast, hosted by your soulmates from the Foot Collective Australia. I'm Jim Dooner. And I'm Mac Lyon. We're on a mission to empower humans to restore their natural health and function from the ground up so they can explore movement and life with freedom and confidence. This week I'm joined by Chloe May Bennett from Functional Souls, which is a podiatry clinic here in Brisbane that she runs with her partner Travis. Throughout the episode we explore Chloe May's journey with podiatry and how her approach has evolved over time. We discuss the role of orthotics in a holistic model of care, the misconceptions around flat feet, especially in young children, as well as some key strategies for the prevention of foot health issues throughout the lifespan. And this week's episode is also brought to you by our brand new TFC community. It's a completely free online space that we like to think of as a private community hall for humans to learn, connect, share, inspire, and support one another on the journey to foot freedom without the usual distractions of social media. Inside, you'll find a growing library of education, training, and resources to help you resolve common conditions, restore natural function, and explore your body's potential. To join us, just head to thefootcollective.com, and you'll find the link in our show notes as well. All right, Chloe May. Hi. So great to have you on the podcast. Thank you. It's um, It's been a long time coming. I think we actually, we first met at the first ever TFC seminar in Melbourne, hey? Yeah, yeah. 2018. Mm, 18. Or, or 19, maybe. One of those. A while Eight, ago. 18, end of, end of 2018. End of, yeah, yeah, that would have been it. Yeah. Yeah, so it's been a while, um, but obviously we've stayed in touch um, through Instagram and caught up, I think here and there at different events. Mm. Um, but you guys are now in Brisbane. We are. Local to us. So yes. I figured it'd be a good time to catch up and have a proper chat. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm especially interested in podiatrists who have a more, I guess, active and empowering approach compared to the traditional, I guess, approach. Mm. Um, so why don't we just start there with a bit about your story with podiatry, I guess, what got you into it, uh, how you found, or how your practice and your approach has evolved over throughout your journey. Yeah, so I got into podiatry, I'd always wanted to be in healthcare. Um, mm-hmm. I knew that from when I was a teenager. So what happened when I was younger is I actually played soccer for New Zealand and wow. when I was when I was in that environment, we had the physio, we had the doctor, we had the sports scientists all sort of working together to keep us on the field, essentially. And when I was in that environment, I just loved the fact that everyone was all working together towards that common goal. And I thought I'd love to be in that sort of position where I could help people get to, back to what they love doing. So um, admittedly for me, the first thought was physio. Um, and it wasn't actually until I went to an introductory seminar about podiatry that I discovered what it was. So I didn't actually know anything about podiatry prior to enrolling. Um, you'd never been to a podiatrist or anything? No, no, we didn't have a podiatrist in our town growing up. Um, so it wasn't until, yeah, I went to that sort of introductory seminar and realized that I could treat sports injuries and manage people but be focused on one area of the body Mm -hmm. I sort of quite like the fact that um, I wasn't having to think about the whole body and from an injury perspective and just focus on one area essentially Mm -hmm. so that was sort of my journey into podiatry Um, but I suppose and what a lot of people probably find is that after university they come out with more questions Um, you sort of you know tip of the iceberg and there's so much more to explore Um, I was actually lucky enough that I discovered uh, the barefoot movement in my first year out of podiatry school, actually. Um, So it was 2016, and Emily Splickle was coming over to Melbourne to run her Level 1 barefoot course. And so Travis and I flew up from Tassie, where we were living at the time, and went on this weekend with her, and it just made so much sense to us. You know, we went through university questioning why we were using orthotics for every single thing that came in. (laughs) And if we couldn't 
give someone orthotics, we were referring to a physio to manage a foot condition. Right. So, yeah. So we, we were just, yeah, lots, lots more questions than answers, I suppose, leaving university. So once we found that barefoot thing, we went, this makes sense. This is what we align with. Um, and before we knew it, we were finding everything we could, um, buying shoes and transitioning ourselves to minimalist as well. So yeah, that's sort of how we, how we got on the pathway to where we are now. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. And then, and then, um, obviously sort out the TFC seminar as well. Yes. It's, it's, it's interesting once you have this new lens or this new view on the feet, then you start seeking out all these different, yep. any, any resources that you can to understand it more from that perspective, because mm. it is, it is quite an odd perspective and something I'm keen to explore with you is, is that training of pretty much every foot condition needs an orthotic. Mm. How is that positioned, I suppose, through, like, cause I haven't been to podiatry school, <laughs> I haven't experienced, um, you know, any of that, but What's the what's the story there? Like, yeah, so I suppose, and this is just how we were trained um, when we went through podiatry school. It may be different now, possibly, but we were trained based on what's called root theory. So Mervyn Root was a podiatrist in the States who determined that the subtalar joint should be in a neutral position in the middle of mid-stance, mm-hmm. which we know doesn't exist. No one is ever in neutral in the middle of mid-stance. But he based his orthotics around creating and holding that neutral position. So everything that you put in, a, in an orthotic prescription was all bringing you back to being straighter. So anytime we looked at a foot and it was slightly pronated, it was needed to be straightened, mm. essentially. And that was the idea behind it, which we know like there is a lot of research out there that says that that's not how orthotics actually work um and that's not the way we should be thinking about it but when that gets drummed into you it becomes so second nature to look at a foot that's pronate and go oh gotta try and lift it up and correct it essentially so everything sort of came back down to too much pronation or um being sort of the cause i suppose effectively yeah right Mm. And I guess that would have been, I'm not sure when, is it Root? Yeah. I'm not yeah. sure when he was about, but I imagine that probably led to a lot of the shoe industry um, mm. talking about that story as well, of yep. like we need to control pronation with shoes and yeah. you know arch supports and so on, which are essentially a form of orthotic for the foot. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just, essentially anything yeah, that's just sort not of, customized. <laughs> yeah. Anything that's sort of limiting that, that movement of the foot essentially. Yeah. yeah. So how do you, so if that was how you were taught in uni, how do you now conceptualize orthotics? Like, what, yeah. Or how so do you approach them as well? It's been a very long journey, I think. Um, so there's been a bit of just cutting back and nodding, not using orthotics at all. And then, realizing that in a podiatry clinic there are going to be cases that Mm. come in that do actually need support um whether i mean the main one probably being a tib post where it's going through those stages of adult acquired flat foot where all the other structures are starting to become impacted as well Mm -hmm. those sort of ones you look at and go okay this does need a bit of help because otherwise we're just going to keep going down this pathway where we can't reverse it eventually. Mm. So I think what I ended up doing is I ended up stopping using orthotics altogether and then starting to reintroduce and plug back in where appropriate, but always with the goal of removing them if possible. Um, So I think they're definitely, for me, they definitely still have a place but just not anywhere near as what I originally was using them. Um, so, you know, first year out of uni, brand new into the game, anyone who came in, it was like, okay, cool, what orthotic can I create to help these people? Yeah. Whereas now it's in the back of my mind. It's one of the one of the tools I have, but it's never the first option. You know, or the first option for me is now always strengthening, and then if I do need just that little bit of support to get, especially to get people out of pain and mm. then build the strength, um, that's where I find they come in. So more of a, what we'd refer to in podiatry as tissue stress theory. Mm. Um, 
looking at reducing the stress on the tissue, letting things heal. Um, but then I'm taking them out and using strengthening to carry people on rather than keeping the orthotic in essentially. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's a similar, I guess a similar process to what I went through with in physio school. A lot of it is just like diagnosing and managing conditions, obviously in all, all different parts of the body and the way they taught us, for example, manual therapy, um, was a bit more of a structural, uh, perspective on it like mm. you know you're you're um, physically loosening up these joints with your hands or um, reducing tightness in the muscles and those kinds of things um, whereas a more up-to-date or modern understanding which is maybe what they're teaching now uh, is more of a neurophysiological yeah. approach and and seeing how you know you're, you're modulating essentially modulating the nervous system which can give you relief of symptoms and I think there's definitely I think there's always big pendulum swings, it seems, in, in our industries where some research will come out and be like, well, you'll get a new understanding. You're like, oh, okay, I don't want to do any orthotics or I don't want to do any manual therapy. And there'll be people on Instagram saying, you know, manual therapy is terrible. And, mm, you, should, yeah. you know, even, um, you know, a lot of what people would call barefoot zealots maybe take it too far and say like, oh, orthotics are always terrible for your feet yeah. or whatever. Yeah, but for sure. If you just sort of view them all as tools, I think I think something you alluded to is the more important part of it is like the narrative that is around the tool that you're using. So yeah. if I'm giving someone manual therapy, which I, d I don't see people in person anymore, so I don't. Um, but when I was, then it was around the with the story of we're doing this so that we can relieve some symptoms, calm some calm things down so that you can actually get more movement in rather than this is going to fix your problem. <laughs> yeah, essentially creating the window of opportunity to yeah. then start to use the strength and conditioning to get you to that long-term result rather than being reliant on something that's a bit more passive, I suppose. Exactly, mm. yeah. And so it's all about empowerment at the end of the day. And Absolutely. if you use a tool to help something calm down, like uh, I think it was Greg Lehman, who's a physio, um, he talks about calming stuff down, building stuff back up. And I was actually, I was looking at your website earlier and you guys have got the three R's, um, yeah. relieve, restore and reclaim. That's it. Um, so that sounds like what you're talking about there. It's like sometimes yeah. you do just need to relieve pain. Um, especially if, you know, if someone's in a serious amount of pain, they can't get through their day. They're not going to be, they're going to have a hard time doing enough movement and exercise to Absolutely. make a change, make an adaptation. Yeah. So, yeah, talk me through the, the three R's, even though we've kind of just alluded yes, to them all. so the three R's. Yeah, so essentially the relief part is just opening that window to being able to re-strengthen yourself, essentially. So a lot of things that we see with the foot, you know, it, it can be debilitating. Um, so sometimes it just needs, whether it needs an orthotic and temporarily, whether it needs to be taped up or mm -hmm. something like that just to get things to settle down. Do you find manual therapy as well? Do you use yes. much of that? Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think I probably dived into manual therapy a lot when I was moving away from orthotics mm. and then went down the pathway where I went, mm, too much manual therapy, <laughs> ease back as well. So I sort of, yeah, went through all those cycles. But definitely, yeah, you know, using our hands-on skills to be able to get people to that point where they then feel comfortable going, yes, now I can go through and do those exercises and notice that difference. Yeah. Mm. I think it's important because part of that comes down to like your, your relationship with the client. Like if a, a client comes to you in pain and you know, is one thing to reframe pain and to talk about goals and more, more functional focused goals yeah. and things like that. But at the same time, if all you give someone is exercises and you haven't sort of discussed how they can manage pain, then they might actually just get turned off you. Yeah. <laughs> even though if that yeah. even though that might be the most evidence based way to help them in the long term, if you don't do anything to help them address their pain, you've kind of missed what they're asking you to to help them with. Yeah, to get that buy in essentially, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, buy in and to to build a relationship with someone so that you can actually help them down yeah. the path. Whereas I think maybe where a, a lot of people go wrong when that pendulum swings too far is oh 
exercise is the only way to, for you to get better in the long run or like load management essentially. Mm. Um, so that's all we're going to do. And then the person's like, well, I wanted something for my pain. So I'm going to go somewhere else. I'm going to go to someone else who's yeah. going to give me that. Yeah. For Whereas sure. if you can combine the two approaches in a way that doesn't build reliance in that mm. client, then that's probably the, the sweet spot. Hey. Yeah. I was just chatting to someone the other day about reliance um, with manual therapy as well. Mm. And I've definitely seen it, seen it before in situations where, people look at it and go, oh gosh, I couldn't even, you know, God forbid if you went on holiday for two weeks and you weren't yeah. available, I wouldn't be able to survive. And I think we see that in the feet with orthotics and shoes as well. Um, I've definitely come across people who can't get up in the middle of the night if they had to get up, go to the bathroom or whatever, can't get up without having to put on shoes and orthotics. You know, mm. can't even walk barefoot around the house. So, you know, and then that's one of our big goals is just you know, we're not out there saying everyone should be barefoot 100% of the time. Um, but we just want people to at least be comfortable going barefoot. You know, we should be able to walk around barefoot for periods of time without feeling like, you know, we're not going to survive without putting a pair of shoes on. Yeah. Mm. And that, that's actually something that we've been leaning more towards, like, I think there's a lot of messages out there, which is like barefoot is best and, and those kinds of things. But you know, realistically, barefoot isn't best in a, in a lot of contexts. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that, that might be an environmental context where there's literally sharp or hot or dangerous things around, yeah. um, which is the whole reason why shoes exist. Yes, absolutely. And, or it might be, you know, in an in individual context where um, going barefoot is actually what uh, irritates or aggravates someone's condition and you actually do need to avoid going barefoot for some time. Mm. In, but with the... Uh, focus of building up to being able to do it. So our, our tagline, which is on the back of my shirt, is shoes optional. Yes, <laughs> so I love we, that. We, we want shoes to be an option. Yes. <laughs> but not a, not something that's mandatory for your feet to feel good. If shoes and orthot- if you have to be in shoes and orthotics at every point for your feet to feel good, then it's a sign that there's some underlying dysfunction or weakness or area that needs to be improved. And as long as it doesn't mean that, you know, that you're... Um, that your feet suck if you can't, but it just means that you should be doing things to work towards that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And that's a lot of our, um, our reclaim part of things. So what, what I've found over the years in podiatry and probably in other allied health too, is that once people get out of pain, that's generally when they stop going to their clinician. Yep. And so the reclaim part for us is let's continue getting you stronger so that you're not coming back to me every six months, every year. Mm. I mean, terrible business model, kicking people, you know, telling people don't come back. You know, <laughs> I want you to be better and not need me. But essentially, that's the goal. You know, just to be able to really help people is to take them that one step further from I'm pain free, I'm better, to now I'm pain free, but I'm also stronger. Yeah, mm. yeah, and and also. I guess another tag, we've got a few taglines, but um, obviously the the tagline and the name of this podcast is the Restore to Explore podcast. Um, So Restore to Explore being like, yes, it's important to restore natural foot function and, you know, restore mobility and strength and coordination to the feet and to other parts of the body. But really it's for the goal of exploring movement more and exploring out in nature and just being more confident and free with your movement rather than just getting out of pain for the sake of getting out of pain. Um, and yeah, like you said, if you, once you restore, if you just don't do anything from there, you're more likely to sort of fall back into pain and dysfunction rather than if you're out there exploring and doing a lot of things with your body, that's what actually maintains its good function, maintains and continues to improve it. Absolutely. And I think obviously our modern lifestyle, we've lost a lot of that explore exploring different Mm. movements different positions and things you know Mm. if we're sitting in the car driving to work sitting at work all day driving home sitting on the couch you know we haven't really had any variety i suppose in our in our movement yeah and then that's that's where i think people can get trapped is you know they might have the best foot exercises in the world (laughs) and they do that for half an hour a day but for the rest of the day they're not doing anything yeah you know, it might be a one step forward, one step back kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So how do you find navigating that with clients when 
one, you know, they might expect orthotics or want orthotics or just sort of that's the general understanding with podiatry is that they get orthotics for their foot condition. Or two, some people might want exercises or expect exercises to help. Um, but how do you navigate sort of talking them through their lifestyle and how that interacts with their foot health as well? Yeah, yeah. It's definitely, definitely people come in to see podiatrists expecting orthotics. Um, and I think there's definitely the other side of the table where people avoid seeing a podiatrist because they don't want to be stuck in mm. orthotics. I think that's definitely the other side of the scale also exists as well. Um, I think a lot of it, a lot of it comes down to education. I don't think many of the general public are coming to a podiatrist expecting to get exercises and strength and conditioning. Right. Um, so and that's they probably expect where that more from the physios they do definitely yeah. yeah um so i think people tend to be a little bit surprised i suppose if they don't know my background um if they just happen to be coming in for a consult they definitely are expecting um orthotics mm. and nothing else um so i think a lot of it just comes down to education um marketing around the business which is what we've sort of ramped up doing now so that people who are coming to you actually want what you provide yes. kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. So people are coming to us knowing that orthotics aren't going to be our first step, um, knowing that it is more likely going to be a strength and conditioning based approach. Yeah. Um, so we're definitely essentially yeah, marketing to that type of person who doesn't want to go down that pathway of just having orthotics for the rest of their life. Sure. Mm. Yeah. And do you, do you find, do you lose people? Or if, you know, or is it enough to, I guess, I've, I guess I've found that once you explain the concept to someone, they're like, oh, that actually makes sense. Yeah. Do, do you find that it's easy enough for people to sort of come onto that way of thinking? Yeah. So I think the first, especially the initial consult becomes a lot of education, um, the why, the why we're doing things. Yeah. Um, I think once you go through and explain that whole process and what's expected of them in the journey, then the buy-in's a lot better. Yeah. And I think that's just because there's just been such an expectation that podiatry is orthotics. That's mm. just what how it's been for so long. So it's just a matter of changing that narrative um, to you're going to do this yourself. We're going to be here to guide you. Mm. Um, but we're not going to be doing it all for you, holding your hand. It's going to be a lot of what you do and we'll you know make sure you're on the right path from yeah. a strength perspective. Yeah. yeah. And then are you, I guess, yeah, it all comes under education, but you, I imagine you're having to navigate talking to them about how much they're sitting and how their hip function would impact mm. their feet and those kinds of things. It's, yeah. it's a bit of a t tougher one, <laughs> I think, because sitting, people feel like sitting is kind of unavoidable a lot yeah. of the time. And they're yeah. like, well, if I, I have to sit at work, I have to... I sit at the table and, and like we said, there's a lot of sitting built into the day, but are you able to get people on the ground? Do you, how do you navigate all of that? Yeah, so it's, it's definitely one of those things you bring up and you talk about the importance of variability in the movement day um, mm. because I think what, and I've had this before where people come in and they've gone, oh, I've heard that sitting's terrible, so I'm standing all day. But then standing all day, we're getting sore feet or other things are coming yeah. from that as well. So I think, again, education is always key. Um, I think a lot of it comes down to we need that variety of movement. So let's have definitely have some standing to replace some of the sitting, but let's change positions and let's get on the floor and, you know, mm. explore different positions on the floor. So, yeah. I think, yeah, that's a really good point is that, and something that we do try and get across is that sitting in chairs isn't like the devil and it's it's not the worst thing in the world uh but it does just come down to dosage yeah um like it's technically not a very natural position to have your hips and knees at 90 degrees because we would never have been in that exact position in nature mm. um but it is quite a nice resting position um yeah. sometimes and um, I think, like you said, the variability, if you're doing some of that, some, some chair sitting, some standing, some sitting on the ground. Um, and I think key is just, yeah, more movement <laughs> throughout Absolutely. the day. Yeah, yeah. Wherever it is. Um, but if you're sitting, if you have to sit most of the day, 
than just taking really regular movement breaks. Like it's good for your body. It's good for your mind. It's good for your, it's good for your focus. There's really no downside to taking a movement break, even if it's like five minutes Absolutely. Um, in between every 30 or 60 minutes of sitting. Mm. Um, or I guess being still, you'd still want a movement break after a, a, a bout of standing still as well. Yeah. Yeah, um, for sure. But yeah, like you said, standing, standing may not even be that much better than sitting if you're just standing still in one position all day. Yeah, and if we've fact, just replaced. probably more load on your feet and a yeah. lot of people end up with really sore feet from standing all day. Yeah, if we're just replacing sitting all day with standing all day, we probably yeah. haven't solved any problems. You know, mm. we've, we've got our hips out of that position, but now we're, yeah, got something else you're that's happening. The, yeah. yeah, you're loading structures that may not be ready for that load. Mm, definitely. Um, and also it's... Yeah, we're not built to stand still all day either. Mm. We're built to move, basically. Yeah, for sure, for sure. <laughs> is the essence there. <laughs> um, I want to circle back to... You mentioned... Um, was it posterior tibialis tendinopathy? Mm, yes. As like yeah. a particular... Like a challenging condition, but one that um, generally benefits from orthotic use to offload the tendon by the sound yeah. of it. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned adult acquired flat foot. Yes. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. So adult acquired flat foot is essentially a continuum that has four different stages. So the first stage being a tibialis posterior tendinopathy. Okay. Um, and then progressing through where if we say we left it and did absolutely nothing with it, um, the tendon eventually um, giving way and rupturing. Um, and then our ligaments under the foot so our short and long plantar ligaments also being under too much strain and rupturing to the end stage which I mean doesn't happen in a lot of people but when you see it it's not particularly nice the end stage is a fixed ankle valgus so the bones of the foot are actually stuck rigid in a flat foot position Hmm. and cannot physically be moved back Um, so something that we do deal with quite a bit is is podiatrists um and it's one of those things that one you want to assess it properly and get the staging right because that will determine what intervention is needed Mm. stage one where we've just got an unhappy tendon obviously we can get you know stuck into all our fantastic tendon stuff that we do um but if we're further down the pathway where we're losing that tibialis posterior function to help invert the foot again then we need a bit of help whether it is um, a foot orthotic whether it is an ankle brace like a Ritchie brace that's a little bit more that's coming further up the leg to help provide some more support Um, yeah so it's definitely one of those things that if we did absolutely nothing it does have the potential to go further on and become quite debilitating condition Mm. Mm. How how do you think the tendon like how does it develop that tendinopathy in the first place or yeah what do, what do you think is the cause that's a good question um I think a lot of it can be the fact that you know some people do have a lower arch foot type some people do have more movement whether there is an element of hypermobility mm. that's sneaking in there as well um whether we're getting a little bit of I don't know. I wonder, like I do wonder with footwear whether we're not letting the foot go through its movements enough that then when we're out of a shoe, the body doesn't know how to cope with mm. load as well. That's kind of what I was just sort of hypothesizing in yeah. my mind is that if, say, the tibialis posterior is a muscle that's highly involved in the maintenance of a foot arch, mm. um, and we're constantly externally maintaining the arch with external support. Like with a lot of shoes have that arch support and a lot of people are given um, those kinds of supportive shoes as a young child. And like you said, it actually, a lot of those shoes restrict the foot movement and that tendon doesn't build the ability to bear load as Mm. well as it should. And then most people, like you said, they might wear shoes most of the time but, or like we talked about before, they want to go on the beach barefoot yes. <laughs> or they want to go and do something barefoot. And then, like you said, the, the tendon, the foot doesn't really know how to cope being barefoot because it's constantly being supported. And mm. that might be where that irritation 
sort of or that tendinopathy originally developed yeah especially if we're stopping a lot of that eccentric movement of the tip post so like like it's contraction as it's lengthening mm. because if we've got something jammed up under the foot it's not able to go through that movement as well mm. yeah because it, it, i always have um deep thoughts about feet while i'm <laughs> while i'm rock hopping as you do yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because i'm i'm hopping along and my feet are taking a lot of load like it's just hard rocks i'm literally jumping leaping from rock to rock and i'm i'm just always very um grateful for my feet being able to take that load so i get into these sort of deep feet thoughts and then as i watch them all these different angles that they that the rocks force them to yeah. to go so most people are just exposed to kind of one angle um dorsiflexion plantar flexion especially in day-to-day life in shoes and on flat level ground your ankle's not really your foot and ankle aren't really forced into these different positions but then no. when you go into a natural environment and you hop or even just walk around a natural environment you do get a lot of this little a lot of this variability and I imagine that's where the tendons and the muscles build a lot of that load-bearing capacity absolutely um, by being exposed to those different angles yeah yeah Yeah, definitely agree with that yeah um are there any other conditions that you think I think it's just good for people to hear um because you know like I said, with pendulums, people might go, oh, well, I never want to be prescribed orthotics. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, they might go to someone who maybe they do have at some stage of this adult acquired flat foot syndrome yeah. and they go to someone they're like, oh, I never want to be in orthotics. And so they might actually miss out on a helpful treatment that w- will help them in the long term. For sure. So are there any other conditions that people should be aware of or um, that you... that with your experience tend to benefit from an orthotic or is it, is it just too individual? Yeah, it, it does become very individual. Um, to be honest, I think the adult acquired flat foot probably is the main one. Um, the most common one that we see where we go, yeah, okay, we've got to, we've got to keep, we've got to consider this depending on what stage we're at. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's definitely probably the main one to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. And otherwise it's just if, uh, I feel like my understanding, not that I have any experience with prescribing orthotics, but my understanding would be if someone's just really st- struggling to get through their day without severe pain and yeah. they're like fully debilitated and an orthotic helps them relieve that pain. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, so f- circling back to flat feet again, mm. what's it, so there's that, obviously there's that cascade of adult, adult acquired flat foot. Yeah. What about just normal flat feet like people who've been told they've had flat they've got flat feet or um talk to me about flat feet the (laughs) most common thing that people come in to a podiatry clinic and start the conversation with is i've been told i have flat feet i have flat feet um my, my kid has flat feet you know there's a lot of there's a lot of concern in the world about lower arches and feet that appear to be flat mm. and I think over the years there's just been this image created of feet should be should have this you know big arch and they shouldn't be flat but when we when you dive into the research and look at things there is no normal we don't have a number of what an arch should look like Mm. um to be honest having a high a rigid high arched foot is a lot worse than having a low flat foot um high what we call a pes cavus foot Mm. is a lot more problematic than anyone with a with a flat foot for sure so i think there's definitely a lot of concern out there and again that's where a lot of education comes in to say this it's okay it's okay to have a foot that is flatter with a lower arch what we're more concerned with is how that foot functions um making sure that structures like tibialis posterior are happy and working um so yeah i think it's a lot of a lot of, i suppose lot of fear. fear-mongering yeah it's, it's a fear isn't it yeah it definitely yeah. is because and it it's fear and it's like people want to point the finger at something and it's kind of convenient i suppose to be able to say oh your foot is flat that's why you're in pain but really from what you're saying and from what i understand if you look at the research it's not a clear cut 
one-to-one correlation of no. flat foot, therefore you should have pain. Because there are a lot of people who have flatter feet or lower arches, um, say at rest, where a lot of it is um, like it was sort of in weight-bearing, just standing. Mm. Um, but they don't have pain. And there's a yeah. lot of people, like you said, who maybe have a normal arch, a quote-unquote normal arch, um, or, a, or a high arch or, um, you know, something other than flat that do have pain. So it's, it's yeah. not a very obvious thing to say, yep, you've got flat feet, that's why you've got pain, which I yeah. think is what a, is the story that a lot of people have been told. Yeah. And, you know, maybe that's come from practitioners in some ways and maybe that's come from the shoe industry. Mm. Um, yeah. But it's... Yeah, I think it's good for people to be aware that that's not actually... That doesn't actually match up with what we understand... It, in the research yeah yeah so a lot of the research will look at foot types you know low arch high arch but there's very little correlation with a lot of injuries Mm. that directly go you have a low arch flat foot therefore you have this injury yeah Mm. it's not quite as simple as that yeah and it has to be individualized and like you said it's a lot a lot of it down is down to how the foot functions through movement rather than how it looks just when you're standing there. Yeah, Uh, yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, What about, this is probably a topic that's especially good for you being Mm -hmm. like a, well, not a new mum, but a relatively new mum. What about baby's feet and the development of baby's feet? Because I, I think a lot of parents get concerned about their one or two year old having flat feet and then get them into supportive shoes because their foot arch is so flat. Yeah. Talk to me about that. So I recall going back maybe four years or so ago, I recall a patient coming in with their 14-month-old baby who had just started walking and came in, said to me, I'm really worried about my son's flat feet. He's just started walking and everyone's noticing that he walks inwards on his arch and his foot is flat on the floor. So right from the get-go, parents are worried about it. Yeah. Um, What... I've found, and I mean, it's fascinating when you have a child watching their foot develop and watching how they go into walking and getting used to all of that new movement. Um, The big thing is that we have that little fat pad that sits under our arch as babies. Mm. And that takes, you know, two, two, three years for that to disappear so that we actually see a bit of an arch. We then think about what the knees go through with development so the knees are going to go from being bow-legged before they start walking in those first 18 months of life to straight to then knock kneed at the age of sort of three to four to then eventually straight again at seven to eight every time our knees go through that movement the feet are going to follow yeah so if we're in that peak age where our knees are diving inwards our feet are going to be flat and we know that our feet are going to stay flat up until that seven to eight, if not, I mean, some research even says up to age 10 before you get an adult arch shape or the arch shape that you'll have as an adult. Yeah. Um, Definitely something I've found is that parents do get very concerned about kids' feet and thinking that they need to provide a supportive shoe Mm. to help that flat foot. Um, I've been doing a lot of education lately around kids uh, parents with kids who are in that sort of preschool you know newly walking up to about you know four to five age group and telling them about how the foot is naturally developing um, that it's normal for kids to have a flat flat foot for those first few years of life and then what we can do to help that natural development rather than putting something stiff rigid under their feet and going for something that is more of a natural, allowing for natural movement, mm. um, like minimalist shoes. It's a, a weird kind of self-fulfilling prophecy when you say, okay, this um, two-year-old has flat feet. Let's put something supportive. Let's get them in supportive shoes, art supportive shoes. But then that weakens the muscles that would eventually create a healthy sort of strong arch. Yeah. Right? It's, it's a, yeah, it's a shame that that is so ingrained in people's psyches and beliefs that we have, that flat feet are terrible. Cause I've seen it in, um, 
people close to me as well going, oh, like, we're a bit concerned about this flat foot. I'm like, oh, just, just leave it. Like, see how it goes. But is there any point at which in that, in that developmental process, say between zero and 10, Mm. when, um, say 10 is the upper limit for when you'd expect to see a sort of healthy, strong art. Yeah. Is there any point at which supporting it, it, um, supporting it, externally is helpful yeah um so there there always are cases where you go okay actually this does need a bit more help we deem a flexible mobile flat foot as part of normal development yeah if we see a flat foot that is rigid then that is a bit of a that's a red flag for Mm, us mm. um so we know there's something else going on we know kids feet should be really really mobile when they're younger um so when we see a flat foot that is rigid that then warrants a bit more a bit more help um same as like the high arch that's rigid hey yeah it's yeah, basically exactly. rigidity is more the issue rigid, rather than the rigid actual, is an issue for yeah. sure um the latest research that i was reading the other day that talks about kids footwear and when to well kids sort of foot development and when to intervene um they are recommending by age eight if there's sort of problems happening pain flat feet tripping all that sort of Mm. all those sort of red flaggy sort of things by age eight then they say yeah it it can be time to intervene Mm -hmm. because by that age we should be seeing that progression to having sort of an arch whatever whatever we deem normal um Mm. so from from that sort of age eight is when we'll start to go okay do we need a bit of help um Again, is it, you know, an orthotic to help things and then a strength strengthening to get everything back on track? Um, again, really individualized. Yeah. Um, everyone's so different. There's so many factors that are involved. But, yeah, generally those sorts of things would be when we start to go needs a little bit more external support. Sure. And do you, do you find, again, it's, it's individual, but... Do you think it's more genetic factors or environmental factors that lend itself to that rigidity of whether it's a flat or a high arch? Um, yeah, um, high arches, there's definitely a genetic sort of involvement. There's a lot of um, even like neurological conditions that mm. will create a high arch foot. Uh, most people, if you talk to them about their parents, their grandparents, there is a bit of a recurring pattern. Um I think then if we've got that little bit of a genetic bias sitting in the background, then if we have the environmental, then just sort of creates it a bit more so. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there's definitely cases where we can change our environment to help influence Mm. um, what we may already have sort of lurking away in the background from a genetic standpoint. Yeah, because I'm just thinking if, say say, a child has a more genetic predisposition to a rigid high arch or a rigid low arch Mm. um would they be expressing that if they were exposed to a lot of um, natural environments because i think that's the other thing we're contending with is um it's not only the footwear that is an environment for our foot but just our landscaped (laughs) societies like just everything's flat and level and and kids aren't really getting much exposure generally to a lot of those different textures and surfaces that would expose their foot to the opposite direction, I suppose. Like, say, if it's flat, they're not getting a lot of deep pressure into their arch to sort of push their joints back into um, the, the yeah, know, exposing inversion, to different for example. Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, it's all hypothetical anyway, but it's interesting to think about. Yeah. And what's fascinating watching our daughter grow up is watching her and her reaction to different textures so we have made sure that we've exposed her to different textures whether it be out in the grass whether it's um she loves the naboso standing mat oh yeah um yeah. standing on that like she'll go and find it and you know have a walk around That's on cool. it um just yeah exposing her to different textures she she really loves it yeah, yeah loves being if we're out in the playground you know and there's a bit of bushland she'll more than happy to get in there and go and explore and walk around. Nothing seems to phase her. Like if there's, you know, sticks on the ground, rocks on the ground, she'll just sort of plough through them and not be too worried. So it's, it's quite cool to see that, you know, the more you expose your feet to different textures, and we know this as adults, 
you know, you can start off being quite sensitive to, mm. you know, say walking on the driveway or walking, walking on stones and stuff. But the more you do it, the more you, you know, sort of get used to that, mm. those different textures. I think it's, I think it's so key that we as, like, as parent, well, by the time this podcast comes out, I think I probably will be a parent <laughs> as, as we're recording it. I'm about a month away from the due date. Um, but yeah, we as parents, um, sort of allow and facilitate that exploration of different surfaces and textures, but also model it. Like if, if we're constantly wearing shoes and never going out onto natural surfaces then our kids probably aren't either. Um, but you know, if we're, if we're allowing that and facilitating that and showing that it's good with our kids, then they'll follow suit and their bodies are so malleable and so, you know, yes, there's risks, of course, there's risks to anything. Um, but I think the risk of not exposing our kids to, you know, challenging environments and textures and, um, not exposing them to challenge is probably more risky than keeping them coddled up and and wrapped in cotton wool at all times. And that even extends to risky play, Yeah, you know, letting kids go and, you know, climb a playground that looks like it's maybe a little bit too big for them but letting them learn from those experiences yeah yeah it's it's kind of what we're built to do and i think at the end of the day with all of what we're talking about and and foot conditions and um most diseases really are just a manifestation of our disconnection from nature yeah (laughs) at the the end of day to get to get very deep on people coming up towards the end of the the podcast but um you know our our genes really expect certain inputs based on how we've evolved throughout our um yeah our evolutionary history and when we don't get those inputs then we manifest symptoms as a result of that it is what i believe at the at at its core Mm. um but if we you know, it's not that we all have to go out and live in caves or, <laughs> although I don't think that's technically accurate. I don't think we were actually ever cavemen, but we don't have to go out and be completely wild. Like there's amazing things in this, um, society, like modern society provides us with a lot of luxuries. And I think living within it is great, but you can purposely provide inputs that are more natural, especially to the feet. That's an obvious one. Get yeah. out barefoot in textured, you know, different textures and natural environments. Um, but we can do a lot to prevent a lot of these issues, I think, by just sort of having a few um, priorities of what to what to input into the body. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So preventative-wise, I mean, we kind of just alluded it to there, but what would be like the key things, maybe starting with kids and, and even for adults who don't have any foot problems, what's the best things people can do to prevent foot problems yeah so the main definitely the main starting point i always like to educate people with is exposing barefoot time um, Mm and different textures that sort of thing um i think as well like having a bit of a focus on making sure we're keeping up that bit of a strength in our lower limb um i think the amount of people that we see who if we go through and test like a single leg calf raise like an endurance a lot of people just don't have that endurance that they need in the calf complex Mm. complex Um, especially when it comes to people who are wanting to get back into running or are already runners Um, I think the more background work we can do from a strength perspective then the better off we're going to be especially when it comes to um, continuing to run or increasing mileage that sort of thing because that's when we start to see those little injuries pop up is that we're working towards say half marathon or we're just wanting to build up you know how long we're going running for I think a lot of that a lot of it comes down to if we're not doing that little bit of other strength work in the background yeah. then that's where little things can start to creep in so even you know something as simple as doing calf raises when you're brushing your teeth um, exposing time to being balancing on one leg mm. um, all those little little things that you can just add into your day that don't feel like you're having to carve out time in your day mm. so a lot of people um, are a little bit time poor and feel like they don't they can't commit to you know a whole specific program but even just little little snacks of movement um, throughout the day can make a big difference as well yeah 
Yeah, I think, I think that's pretty key because, especially from a prevention side of things, like mm-hmm. it might be different with a rehab population, I imagine, yeah. where, you know, you, you kind of do have to just carve out a section of your day rehab to does, yeah. to rehab. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, that's just the way it is. But that's why the old saying of an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cures is so um, good to remember because it's much easier to prevent things than it is to... Um, to cure them i suppose it is <laughs> definitely it's just kind of the way it goes yeah um but yeah all, all of those i think i think a lot of people just aren't aware of how their body is functioning until they have some kind of pain and then they go and get it assessed yeah. and then it's like oh yeah you're you can't do a single leg calf raise and you're a runner that's an issue yeah. <laughs> um or yeah you can't balance on one leg mm. like for anyone that's an issue it is yeah. but people don't assess that in themselves until there's some kind of issue that pops up as a symptom rather than like i think there was a there was a study came out relatively recently about how balancing on one leg is a for 60 seconds is a predictor of mortality or the inability to balance on one leg for 60 seconds um, basically means you're at a greater risk of dying in the next mm. five years. Um, don't quote me exactly on the, the years there, but um, basically it's a, a, if you can't balance on one leg, it's a predictor of uh, increased risk of diseases and, and dying. Mm. Um, and it's like, well, that should probably just be a standard assessment for every practitioner and every, especially even GPs, but every health practitioner should really be assessing your balance to go, well, if you, if you're unable to balance it on one leg, it's a sign that there's greater issues. And so that needs to be addressed. Um, it's not that necessarily that the lack of balance is going to kill you. It might in in an elderly population where Mm. falls are a big risk. Um, but it's a sign that your movement system isn't doing what it's supposed to, basically. Yeah. Um, so all those those things, I think, are really key. Just simple assessments, balance, like you said, calf raises, mm. maybe the ability to squat, yeah. you know, the, the, your comfort level with sitting on the ground. These are really simple things that people can assess and, and work on as, a, as preventative strategies. Yeah, yeah, and easy to implement into a day without mm. feeling like you're having to yeah, carve out time or make it a priority. I think that's a, that's a key. Yeah. yeah. Like you, you can prioritize them without feeling like you're having to deprioritize everything else. else. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. Well, that might be a good, good place to wrap it up that, that we've been talking for an hour, which is flown. <laughs> it, um, it always does. I'm sure we could chat for hours, but, um, it'd also be cool to get Travis on sometime. Um, Absolutely. Have, have a big chat with him. And yeah. Just hear about it would it. be longer than an hour chat. Yeah. I guarantee it. <laughs> yeah. I'll have to allocate a few hours. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, really appreciate you coming on and, and having a chat and I'm sure we'll do a follow up sometime next year. You're, you've got your, um, new clinic currently operating a day a week in North Brisbane, yes, which is awesome. Yeah. Um, and your, we can link things in the show notes, but where's, where's the best place for people to find you? What, what do you, where should we direct people? So our website is functionalsouls.com.au um, and we're probably most active on our Instagram, which is at functionalsouls. Sweet. It's the best cool. place to find us. Love yeah. the name. Yes. <laughs> it took us a little while to work on the name, but once we had it, we were like, that That's just it. tells us everyone exactly what we're about. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Cool. All right. Thanks, Chloe, man. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks for listening, everyone. Catch you next week. Thanks for listening to the Restore to Explore podcast. To stay up to date with all things TFC, join our brand new free community. Inside, you'll find a growing library of education, training, and resources to help you resolve common conditions, restore natural function, and explore your body's potential with a community that's there to support you along the way. To join, just head to thefootcollective.com or you'll find the link in our show notes.